0: What's up, guys? Mitch from RespectMoragin.com. Welcome back to the RMR podcast, episode 30. Today, I'm joined by special guest Joseph Lakech from Massachusetts, coming in from uh, the co-founder and CEO of Apotheca, a vertically integrated uh, cannabis company out there in Massachusetts. And beyond, you guys are in Oregon too, correct?
1: Yeah, we have a store in Oregon and we're applying for some
0: licensure in other states now. So you know, vertically integrated, going for you know, they got that that multi-state operator title, title, but not not the big bad one, just because a company is in mul- multiple states. They I think they get that by default. I don't know. Some people are scared of that title, but uh, thank you, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I kick off every episode. Around my guests' um, origin story with cannabis. It could can be personal, professional, a little bit of both, whatever you care to be vulnerable of, of sharing. But I'm just kind of curious your, your personal history around the plant.
1: Sure. So, you know, I, when I was younger, I bought into the craziness of marijuana is bad for you. Um, so, if you ask any of my friends from high school or even from college, who was the least likely person to have gotten into the cannabis business, they would have said me. Um, and it really was a lot of just ingrained into me by my parents. Marijuana is bad. Marijuana is bad by my family. Marijuana is bad. And so that's what I believed. And when I was in college, actually it was my first time trying marijuana and it was, I got home from college for a break. I had gained a bunch of weight. So my mom basically was accusing me nonstop. I know you're smoking marijuana. I know you're smoking marijuana. And, um, I was just like, no, I, I, I haven't, and I didn't plan to. And when she just wouldn't let it go, I called one of my good friends, who is, uh, who, who was a good, a big user. I said, okay, I'm ready to try it. And then the <laughs> next day, I went to my mom and I said, now I've tried it. <laughs> um, but what really guided me into this, uh, into this business and this industry, actually, was my parents and my family. Um, basically, on both sides i don't have the best genetics so my dad my uncle my grandfather they all had benign brain tumors Um, and when my dad had his it took three surgeries over the course of a month to fix the situation and during that month they were pumping him full of dilaudid which is a really heavy opioid and very addictive and thankfully he did not become addicted to it Uh, but a lot of people would have would have become addicted after that kind of treatment Mm. Um, so I viewed cannabis as a good way of fighting the opioid epidemic from that side on my mom's side my mom's mom had early onset Alzheimer's so I never really got to know her she passed away when I was five and she just she didn't know anything at that point you know my entire life before my life she just didn't know what was going on uh fast forward to today my mom's older brother has Alzheimer's he's kind of checked out at this point um and my mom at the time that I started this didn't have anything yet but now Parkinson's and dementia and it's mm. rapid deterioration and so when I started to look at cannabis, it, I saw that as something that, will it help with neurological disorders? I don't know, but it may help. And so what's the harm in, you know, consuming cannabis if it doesn't impact or negatively impact, I should say, my life for the hopes that maybe I could stave off Alzheimer's, dementia, or Parkinson's mm-hmm. for myself and then for my kids at some point. Um, so that's what really got me into it. And I should also say that last fall, I had a surgery, and they gave me Vicodin or some other opiate. And the first day, I took it as prescribed. I was taking one pill every four hours. Mm The second day, the prescription called for one pill every six hours, and I pushed it to one pill every eight hours. And every hour on the hour, I was dosing, like, five milligram edible um, to try and help manage the pain. And I was able to get off the Vicodin really, really fast. Hmm. Um, so I, I personally have seen how it could be used, and it was a very painful recovery. So I personally have, have tried it myself, and it's worked for me to not have to deal with opiates.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. I think that, you know, the power around cannabis, whether people come from a recreational use background or understanding the medical components, I think a lot a lot of people in this industry at, at that, that are involved with companies are at a higher level. Have some sort of purpose, greater purpose. I think that's what drives a lot of you know visionaries, creatives, and, and leaders, and entrepreneurs. And a lot of them seem to tie back to these medical benefits or these parts of the story that just shape their entrance of really f- fully diving in. So, very much appreciate you and sharing that. And you know, and am stoked to continually see cannabis, uh, the research behind it for what what it can help with um, the various ailments and, and diseases. Um, and whether it's directly helping with those or just the relief from those, you know, there's there's a lot of different reasons for cannabis use.
1: Well, you know, a, an interesting thing someone told me probably at this point a year and a half ago is marijuana is not a medical thing. Whether it's true or not, I can't, I, I, I'm not an expert, so I can't tell you. But he said it from a different perspective. Imagine if for the next year, or sorry, not year, the next hundred years, everyone in the world got together and decided water is bad for you. You must drink Coca-Cola. And if you drink water, it's the devil's liquid. <laughs> Don't drink water. Humanity would suffer tremendously over those hundred years. And when you started to drink water again and cut out the Coca-Cola, all of a sudden, so much of your functions would start working well again. Mm. Humans have endocannabinoid systems. We need cannabis. We need cannabinoids. And so is it that it? cannabis itself is medical or it's just what the body needs to be properly regulated. Mm. And that's why it affects, it could affect you so positively in so many different areas. So I I thought that that was a really interesting point made. And it's something that I still think about a lot. And I think it's, it's the correct method of looking at this as this plant. Um, You know, you have a situation where this wasn't allowed for, for such a long time and now it is. Hell, even women's breast milk produces cannabinoids for the baby. It keeps the baby sedated, so like that, the baby falls back asleep and gets them hungry again. It's a natural part of what we need. So, is it that cannabis is medical, or it's what the body needs to properly regulate different functions?
0: That's a great. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna carry that with me as well. It's a great example. Uh, whoever, <laughs> whoever put that, put you on that, was on some philosophical, on a philosophical level with that one.
1: Exactly, and it, it makes it makes total sense to me when I think of it like that. Yeah, It was weird to me that one plant could help so many different aspects of your life.
0: And, and that's a great point, yeah, because that's the thing, like, when people, you know, a lot of people that aren't as hip to cannabis as myself are asking me, I hear it does this and does this, and I'm like, listen, it's not, you're not going to smoke weed or t- take an edible and miraculously have every ailment of your life, you know, cured and figured out. It's just like anything else, you know, it does different things for different people, and it affects different people in different routes, different, you know, none of us are the same. None of us experience the same, but that's a great, a great point because it's the same. You know, I like that uh, the water, you know, it's not like water is this it's it's our life, it's a lifeblood, something that we need to survive. But it's not like drinking water in itself is going to do this or that. But if you take that away and try and fill that gap with something else, then definitely you'll, you will see uh, various ailments from that.
1: Exactly. And by the way, perceptions of cannabis are shifting, even with older generations. Um, I remember when I first wanted to look at this industry, I sat down with my parents. I sat down with my mom and my dad. I said, I want to explore the marijuana industry. My dad is sitting across from me from his desk like this, just angrily looking at me, not saying a word. And my mom says to me, is it legal? I say, kind of. Can you make money? I said, I think so. Well, then go explore and let us know what you find. And at this point, I wasn't dating my now wife yet. And and as a good Jewish mom, she looks at me and she says, but how are we ever going to get you married when they find out what you do for a living? (laughs) And so it started like that with my parents. And in the end, now my dad takes cannabis to help him sleep. He likes the tinctures and edibles. So I make sure he always has what he needs to help him sleep. Uh, My mom refuses to try anything and it's become harder to get her to try something, even though it could probably really benefit her in particular. Uh, But like even my grandmother, who's now in her nineties, if you ever asked her like five, six, seven years ago, what does Joseph do for a living? She started off by saying, don't even talk to me about that. <laughs> and, then, and then evolved into something with medicine. And literally a couple of weeks ago, she calls me and she's like, I, I, I remember you told me he had this cream that could help me with my back pain. I'm having trouble sleeping. I'm, I'm willing to try it now. And so I took it to her and then I saw her on Saturday. I try and see her a couple of times a week, hang out with her, with her and my kids and all that stuff. And she's like, can you bring me some more, please? <laughs> with progression.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 cha- as legalization um, you know, continues to grow across the, the country, especially the medical front, you know, that we're we're past the tipping point. We're on the downhill slope of, of legalization sweeping the nation. Um, and we just need, you know, and, and and people's perceptions are shifting alongside that, but you know, part of this tipping point, I feel like for me personally, the Massachusetts market being the first you know east coast market if if i'm correct that went adult use beyond just medical which is you know for me adult use is mainstream right i think everybody can get behind hey cannabis has medic potentially at least potentially has medical benefits and that's why we see medical cannabis in so many states but i think adult use is just that you know inching that closer to that 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 goal line of just normalization and since so, so you guys have had that on the east coast what what has been some of those shifts of kind of going from a medical market to a rec market and kind of how has the public perception also shifted alongside that? So
1: along the way, there was a staunch opposition to launching recreational. You had virtually the entire political establishment of Massachusetts lobbying against the voter referendum in 2016. Um, it, was, it was incredibly intense. And they used every scare tactic in the world. High, people driving high, more accidents. Kids are going to get access to this. Never mind the fact that most kids have free access to marijuana through their friends, through local dealers. I mean, I'm sure if you walk into a high school and open up every locker and backpack, you'll find more marijuana there than in any one of my stores. Um, And so it was a lot of scare tactics to really get there. And then it passes in 2016. The legislature takes it over. They change a lot of of what passed. And it still took them another two years to actually launch it. It didn't launch until November, December of 2018, with the first two stores, uh, Netta in, North, in, in I think uh, Northampton and Cultivated in Leicester, and it was a complete nightmare in the, for those two municipalities. Think about it: east of the Mississippi, it's not just the East Coast. East of the Mississippi, these are the only two recreational cannabis stores open. Of course, it was going to be a disaster. People were driving from everywhere just to go to these two stores. Hour long waits, crazy traffic. It was a nightmare. But now a store opens, no big deal. Doesn't matter anymore. That's the beauty of it. New Jersey's going wreck. New York is going wreck. Connecticut's going wreck. Maine went wreck. It's not a traffic driver, it, it's not creating more accidents. Kids are not smoking marijuana in higher quantities. So all the fear tactics have really gone away. And I think that you're seeing that in polling from the support for legalization continue to grow.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And what, what is kind of, you know, the, the origin of Apotheca? I mean, you guys were in the medical market and have shifted with this. What's, what's kind of the origin story of of that business?
1: Sure. So when I went to school in Massachusetts, I'm I'm born and raised in Florida, I've lived in Massachusetts multiple times throughout my life. Um, in school (laughs) with my first business I moved out there for about six months. And with this business, I moved out there for about two, uh, two years uh, to really get things started. And so for me, when I wanted, to, when I decided I wanted to get into the medical market, I didn't really want to look at the West Coast. My entire family's in South Florida, and so I wanted something a little bit easier access to start out with. Um, and I knew the Massachusetts market well. They were getting ready to do their second round of medical licensing in 2015. And so I decided, let's, let's jump into that. Um, so we did. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never done municipal lobbying before. I'd never done um, a regulated industry like this before. And so something that I had to learn as I went. It was a lot of chaos trying to figure it all out at the beginning, but we did. And that, for me, I really w- tried to focus on really good areas to put this, to put our company. Uh, from a cultivation perspective, we're in Fitchburg. There was actually a friend of mine, uh, Ross Gale. I'm going to say that name only because if he watches it, you'll see that he got a shout out. Uh, his family has a, a business where they buy distressed properties and plants um, and either try and flip the proper, the plant how it, for whatever function they bought it for, or they sell it off for the sum of its own parts. And so I called him and I said, do you have anything for me to see in Massachusetts? He says, I have one thing in Fitchburg. So I went to Fitchburg and it was a 26 acre former Bayer Pharmaceutical Campus with about 106,000 square Ooh. feet of structure. Split up over ten different buildings, and it was—it it looked like a horror movie. In fact, uh, the guy who played Desmond from Lost shot a straight-to-home, straight-to-video movie of a chemical <laughs> spill on that site at some point. Um, it was—it was really scary. I mean, there were some buildings you could not walk into because it was full of tanks and pipes and everything. But it was decommissioned perfectly. Massive Phase One, Phase Two environmental reports done through the EPA, um, and I saw what it, what that campus could be. At the same time, I was also looking at another city in Massachusetts called Holyoke. And Holyoke wanted to give me a quarter million square foot building. And Holyoke was attractive for me because the electricity costs there were substantially lower than other parts of the state. They generate their own uh, hydroelectricity there, have great internet access. Um, And so it was very interesting to me. And the mayor was incredibly supportive of the industry. But the quarter million square, square foot building, when I took my general contractor, he's like, they might be guaranteed, but it's a $15, $20 million remediation job to clean out all the lead, asbestos, all the crap inside of it. So what I ended up finding within the city of Holyoke was a 14-acre plot of land that I could basically build what I built in Fitchburg, but the city council president didn't want me to be able to have it. It's still sitting vacant. So it wasn't mm. a fit, a, it wasn't in the zone. The mayor was supportive of it, but he said I needed to get the council president, and the council president didn't want me to use that property for cultivation manufacturing. So we ended up going with the Fitchburg plant. We cleaned the hell out of that site um, in terms of got rid of a lot of things. The guys who sold it to me, we gave him a few years to also take some of the equipment off the property. Uh, we built a 32,500 square foot Nexus enclosed greenhouse that we could flower all year round, so 24/7, 365. Uh, we are we were the first greenhouse in Massachusetts, um, and it's gone incredibly well. So we try to also focus on environmental sustainability, and by working with the greenhouse, you're not you're not fully carbon neutral. You're still, Mm -hmm. still, electricity, and you're still using natural gas and things like that. But you substantially reduce how much you spend. We're probably we probably use about a tenth of the utilities of a pure indoor cultivation facility. So we were able to do that, and then on top of that, last year for the first time, we had a acre of out of of outdoor cultivation. So we cleaned it up. We set it all out. We planted in pots, not into the soil, because we like to be able to control the nutrients that the plants are getting. And marijuana, cannabis plants really suck everything out of the soil. Um, so there's not that much control. And it went really well with that acre, and that was really uh, green. So the utilities on that were security equipment and um, and and uh, the irrigation system. Mm-hmm. So Really, almost nothing from a utility perspective. Now that we could only do one turn a year, the greenhouse operates
0: all year round. And so, so how we thought about it. How many greenhouses do you guys have? One big greenhouse, or it's it's sectioned off into multiple buildings? Sectioned off
1: into multiple zones. So there's ten zones within within the greenhouse. And the idea is every single week, one zone comes down, i it's harvested. One zone is
0: cleaned, and one zone is populated. Okay. So keeping, it, keeping it on that cycle. And then for, for outdoor, you said you did one acre. And then with that, with that product, did you guys end up putting that into concentrates and edibles? Did you put that into flour for sale or all of the above? So
1: it's going to end up being all of the above. We sold some of it for extraction. Um, some of the flour is really nice. We're actually, um, putting together a new brand that's going to be for outdoor and it it really look, it's looking great. I mean, I, my expectation was that 0% was going to be good flour. And somewhere around thirty percent ended up being good flower. Yeah, wow. yeah. I mean, and it was a tricky year. We had a hurricane hit Massachusetts, so yeah. it was raining much more in the in the in Boston in the in the Mass area than normal years. And the plants survived it on. And, and honestly, they thrived. Um, I think we found the right set of genetics. One set of genetics really sucked, so that one obviously is not going outdoors anymore. Um, and I was honestly just surprised as all hell by the uh, by the
0: results. Yeah, it's difficult. Outdoor cultivation is difficult, especially in areas. You know, I live in the Seattle area, um, but, you know, parts of Washington state are very difficult, as you know, a lot of that traditional outdoor that everyone kind of lusts over is that Emerald Triangle. It's just the perfect appellation of soil and, and temperature, but even still with the fires and, you know, these environmental things that are way outside of our control. Um, affect each crop, but that also has the different, dy- you know, same thing as wine, right? It has the, the same dynamics. Different harvests provide different characteristics and and hold different value points with consumers in terms of which one's their favorite or, or the one to go after.
1: Yeah, maybe a little smokier
0: flower. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I remember that when I was I was in Boston in September, and that's why everyone was like, yeah, it's usually not this rainy." And I was like, "I felt right at home, man. I'm from Seattle. It rains all the time <laughs> over here." So. Um, you got you to you
1: move out of the Pacific Northwest, you'll, you'll live a happier life.
0: Yeah, I know. I, it's, not finally, Florida. it's finally starting to finally starting to weigh on me. So much of my younger years were spent recording studios where I didn't even have windows. So I didn't care, but now that I'm not in a cave, the majority of my day, you know, the lack of sunlight is, uh, yeah, it's, it's not that great, man.
1: <laughs> well, Florida is a great place to live. I'm, I'm going to pitch the state to you. No taxes, freedom.
0: All right, all right. I, it's been a long, long time since I've been down there. I'll, I'll have to off to check out the southeast sometime, and maybe once they once they turn wreck, it'll give me a business reasons to go out there, but uh, you know, I'm not interested in visiting medical markets right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and and that's one of the things I wanted to ask, too, is I know you guys have you guys have three dispensaries right now, currently, two are medical and adult use. One is strictly medical. Can you kind of give me the synopsis? I know, You know, Massachusetts turned from this vertically integrated medical to adult use, but it's still fragmented. The same thing we've seen in other states where once it goes adult use, some people don't really know how to keep medical and adult use. There some some states goals. It seems like it's their goal is to kind of eliminate a lot of the medical and move towards this universal adult use. What's what's kind of the temperature between these two different variations and, and how they how they kind of coexist or work against each other? Also, well, in certain states, I
1: think that they messed up the rollout of recreational in terms of they needed a lot more separation between rec and med. What Massachusetts did well was it's only a virtual separation, which means we, our cultivation is technically under a medical license. We then transfer the product to our stores or our wholesale partners. And in the transfer, we're able to designate it whether it's medical or recreational. They have a medical license, it goes medical. If they have a recreational license, it shifts to recreational for that delivery. And then once you're in a store, like in our stores, we try and keep both menus, the med and rec menu pair of pursue, So very similar looking, but sometimes something will sell out, sell out on med. There's more inventory on rec. And so what we offer our patients also is we're able to change inventory on the fly.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: we're able to move it over virtually from rec back to med. And so we'll do that for patients if they see something on the rec side that doesn't isn't currently available on the med side. So I think that Massachusetts allowed it, allowed for the rec and med licenses and markets to coexist properly. Where I think that they did make a mistake was it's far more expensive to maintain a medical license than a recreational license. So, for example, uh, one medical license, the renewal fees for the year is $50,000. It's a big renewal fee. On the rec side, since it's broke up into multiple parts of the value proposition, Retail is something like five or ten thousand dollars. Cultivation varies based on the size. Product manufacturing is another five to ten thousand dollars. So, like, I have three medical licenses and right now two recreational licenses, and soon gonna have a third one for the med-only store. If in theory I'm only cultivating under one license, why should I pay fifty thousand dollars for all three renewals? They mm. should really they should really charge me for for like the rec price on, re, on retail for at least two of those. That would make more sense. Also, to register agents, it's different in Massachusetts than on the West Coast. On the West Coast, you as an employee will go do your background check get and get registered with the state licensing authority to work in cannabis. And then you can move from company to company at your discretion. It's a good employee benefit that the West Coast has. In Massachusetts, we as the employer have to register background check and register all of our employees, but it even goes further. So, I walk around with six different or five and soon to be six different cards because I can't also register myself for my company. Mm. I have to register myself per license, a med and rec co-located store, and you have two registrations for that store. so it it, it creates a lot a big burden. And then, again, talking about the price disparity, the medical side charges five hundred dollars for a registration. The recreational side is $115 for registration, so it, it, they 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 have opportunities. The CCC, when I say they, is the CCC. They have opportunities to improve the value proposition of the med market to try and attract more companies to go into the med market. Um, and I think, at, you know, hopefully at some point this this new panel, this primarily new panel, will really look at that and look to adjust the regulations. I mean, I have some friends in the industry in Massachusetts that started out medical and as soon as they got the rec, they just stopped the medical process because it was just, it didn't make sense for them to do it. They yeah. have the whole vertical just in different pieces. You make the medical work better from a value proposition for operators and why not sign up for it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like unnecessary hoops and a lot of uh, extra coin, which uh, is not uh, any stranger to any part of cannabis <laughs>
1: Exactly, and you know, from a patient perspective, the patient count did start to did slow down as soon as the rec passed. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I understand that rec is coming. People don't necessarily want to be on a list, even Mm -hmm. if the list doesn't really exist. I mean, I don't have, I've never had a medical card anywhere, even I could have gotten one in Mass when I was living there. I could get one in Florida today, mainly because I don't want to be on a list because I also have a concealed carry permit. So, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be on both of those, on both those lists.
0: Yeah. And I I can identify, I've been, I've been a long time member of the cannabis industry. I always call it pre-industry, but I never subscribed to getting the card for various, uh, personal fears, but, you know, being in Washington, once it went wreck, the prices, you know, you don't really save that much by being, it just doesn't, I don't know. For me, it's not that that big of an issue. I know for some people it is, but from the from the patient and consumer side, what is that what does that savings look like? I guess being a med a med patient versus a rec consumer in Massachusetts?
1: So there's a there's a bunch of different buckets. First, the ease is a 20% sales tax. Patients pay 0% sales tax, adult use consumers pay 20%. That's the biggest one to say right off the bat. The second one, is coupons, promotions discounts on recreational sales in in Massachusetts, but you can on medical sales. So for example, we have daily deals in our our stores for our patients only. Um, Today is, what day is, Monday? Munchy Monday, 15% off edibles. So only available to patients. I wish I could offer that to adult use consumers as well. Mm -hmm. So aside from saving on the 20%, you'll have these discounts and promotions available on the med side that you won't have on the rec side. Um, And then it's also, from an experience perspective, recreational, you're limited to 5 milligrams per dose, 100 milligrams per package. On the med side, you're limited to your state limit, which is 10 ounces every uh, every 60 days. So there are no dosage limits. If, you're, if you need 100 milligrams to be able to fall asleep because you're in chemo and it's destroying you, you could get that much easier on the med side than on the rec side. On the rec side, you have to buy an entire chocolate bar, an entire bag of gummies, and you have to consume all that. The med side, you could buy a 1,000 milligram chocolate bar and take off a little square if you wanted to.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. another
1: big difference. And then the third one is on the med side, you have your own line. So the only real separation in the store is med patients have their own lines, priority access to get into the dispensaries, um, and it's st- it, all that you need to have is a stanchion to really separate the two lines. So from a convenience perspective, it also helps in that perspective to be a med patient.
0: So it sounds like if I move to Massachusetts, I'm getting a medical card man uh. Probably.
1: It make, it make sense for someone like you.
0: Yeah and uh, you know and thats that was one of my things on my on my trip out there of noticing like the five milligram limits. I mean I, I get the thought process, right like one of the biggest fears uh, in terms of cannabis becoming legal and normalized is people overdosing or consuming over consuming i'll say because overdosing is an inaccurate statement in my opinion but I, I fully understand you know the person who doesn't know what they're doing and drinks too much soda and gets way too high and then they're you know nothing's really going to happen but then they might go to the emergency room and then they're taking away that bed or that prime, you know that caregiver for someone that you know more serious it's not if someone's freaking out having a panic attack it's serious i'm not trying to to devalue that but it's just not the same right as someone that comes in off a traumatic injury Um, but as a consumer that's well vetted in the world of cannabis as myself i like the thousand milligram 500 milligram edibles not because i consume all of it at once but because i can just take a little bit and get you know 50 to 100 milligrams as opposed to like you say you know five milligram soda i don't drink soda so now you're telling me i have to drink fucking 10 of these to get to my you know my desired limit you know just for some casual uh leisure activities and it just doesn't you know i don't i don't mesh very well with that but at the same time if you have access to legal cannabis you know your your list of complaints is still pretty privileged
1: you know the way i look at it is i think a 10 milligram per dose makes more sense Mm -hmm. and it still keeps the market open to lower dose edibles i mean we produce can in massachusetts C A N N, and they have their high boys, which are five milligrams per can, and they have uh, one to one CBD uh, THC CBD, which is two and a half milligrams of each. So you you could have both markets, just because he set it at ten milligrams doesn't mean everyone's producing to ten milligrams. Mm-hmm. Hell, our chocolate bars, the way that we that, that a lot of them have, a lot of the companies produce them is the whole bar hundred milligrams. Then each square would be ten milligrams, but then you could cut. It's different. It's it's delineated so that you could do a triangle for five milligrams. Mm. There's nothing wrong with being able to do that, and um, you know I think ten milligrams makes more sense for me personally. Ten milligrams of an edible is what I need to feel something. It's what I do during the day. At night, I go to twenty milligrams if I want it to help me sleep. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I just don't want to consume that much chocolate or gummies or whatever or whatever I'm consuming.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to eat a whole bag of, s- of snacks to to whether if you're seeking uh, medicinal or even recreational, you know, effects. It's not something that you want. Um, You know, for you guys, that bag of snacks gets followed up by another bag of munchy snacks. Yeah, exactly. Because then now I'm eating three bags of gummy worms. You know, (laughs) it's it's a vicious vicious cycle. Uh, um, You know, the Massachusetts market obviously coming. You guys were established in medical, which was vertically integrated, moving to adult use. um, That still exists. That that license type. You know, out here on the west coast, there's certain states that don't allow that. Certain states that that welcome it. Um, You know, it gives a nice business model wise, it gives a nice strategic advantage. But as the market matures, that advantage kind of shifts, right, where you're able to produce every good that you sell. But as the market matures, there's going to be consumer demand for other products that aren't necessarily the products you have. And a consumer might want to come in and buy multiple products. So now you guys are at a point where you're able to produce a lot of products in store, but also able to wholesale those products to other stores and carry other stores, potentially vertically integrated products to your stores. What kind of unique uh, components of the market does this this kind of business model and structure kind of set up for you guys?
1: Well, it really is different for every single company. So I can't speak for the industry as a whole. I know some vertically integrated operators that don't care. They're only going to sell the stuff that they produce. I look at it more like a Trader Joe's model. In any category I compete, I want 80% of the sales. And I'm good with bringing in the other 20% from outside. There's brands that end up mattering, brands that don't. The ones that matter, I want them in my stores. So I'm for the most part agnostic to that. I just want 80% of the sales to come from my products. Um, so that's really the way I personally look at it. And it's how we're how we've been executing.
0: And what, is, what do you kind of determine as the products to fill that 20%? Is it to fill kind of some strengths where you guys might not be as strong? Is it where the okay. consumer demands lies? Like what's what's the thought process on that? It's a combination of
1: both, I would say. So like, for example, um, a great product that's sold in Massachusetts is uh, coast cannabis chocolate bars. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to meet Angela, um, the CEO of the company before they even really got started for her partner, partner, Brian. Um, we went to their facility, which is in South Southern Massachusetts, on the South shore area and on the way to P town. And um, for us, what really struck me about them was the quality of their chocolate. So they, that first visit gave me uninfused samples and I swear to God, I would love that chocolate, those chocolate bars uninfused just to eat. They were that good. And so when they launched, we went pretty aggressive with them. We brought them in uh, to the stores and we did whatever we could to really promote and push it uh, because it was just a great product. And so we've done that with a lot of different companies where we try and a new company comes in uh, veteran-owned, minority-owned things like that. You know, I'm Hispanic, so i, I try and also pass that forward and uh, you know help help people succeed in the industry. Sometimes they sell well, sometimes they don't. I like to try a lot of the different products myself, just to see and be how how, how it is, how it works, how you feel, how it tastes, the texture. Um, and sometimes they're good ones, sometimes they're bad ones. If there's bad ones, we figure out a way of getting through them, and then we keep. Bringing on new guys and trying to find the right wholesale partners to have the right products in the store—it's really trial and
0: error. Absolutely, and I think that's a great way to get gauge edibles in this market. You know, pre pre legalization you know, honestly, we—I personally, I preferred the edibles. It tasted like weed. It made you feel like it was going to get higher. Now, at this point, with all this nanotechnology, all this science, and Infusions and different types of extractions. You know, I always gauge like edibles when I eat it, and I'm like, even if this wasn't infused, and I could buy it for a dollar instead of twenty dollars a package or two dollars, it'd be like I would. This would be in my cupboard at all times, you know. And those are the edibles that are easy to consume.
1: Well, it's funny because one of the things I told Angela from Coast is, I want you to make the same chocolate bar, but instead of a hundred milligrams per bar, I would like to see a twenty milligram bar. Call Mm -hmm. it your savor bar. I'll, I'll eat half of the bar if I if I it's that good. Yeah, and they just yeah. she hasn't done it yet, so I have to keep bothering her,
0: or <laughs> <laughs> just keep getting those uninfused samples. You know, you right. <laughs> uh, you know an- another thing that's unique about Massachusetts. I want to bring up is your guys's uh, testing requirements for flour. I've constantly heard within that industry, uh, you know, a lot of people don't like testing anywhere, but I know you guys might take the cake in terms of. Uh, just rigorous testing what are what are some of the components that uh, of that go into testing that are kind of unique to that market let's
1: talk about cultivating flower in general because you kind of get screwed on the way in and on the way out so on the way in you get screwed because um, the Department of of Agriculture MDAR controls what can be put on the plants and they've erred on the side of caution by basically saying nothing organic materials I think it's 23 B the classification that do not have EPA registration numbers so something, for example, that I'm sure you've seen in a lot of cultivations is clonex, root hormone mm-hmm. gel for clones. That is not allowed in Massachusetts. Something that simple. Um, there's other different materials that in other states, you're allowed to, you're able to put it on. Some of these things have, some of these chemicals have half lives of 10 days, 20 days, and then it's just completely gone. And so if you were even able to put a little bit of that stuff on vegging plants, it opens up the market in a tremendous way, but you can't put it on anything, even though the, sh- the, the, the half-life is so short. So you really are stuck in a position where you know, citric acid, lavender extract, other bugs, that's, that's really what you're able to do to control your cultivations. Then on the way out, the testing is incredibly rigorous. A lot of states test to the parts per million for um, yeast, mold, other bacteria, things like that. Massachusetts, it's parts per billion. So it's a much more stringent testing regime, which when we got into the business and into the market, when we realized how hard it was gonna be to cultivate flour, we put all of our focus and energy on getting that right first. We had a lot of missteps. Um, My first grower, I remember it was, our first harvest was in August of 2018. And obviously I'm very excited. It's my first harvest, I'm, I'm happy. And the entire thing was full of mold is getting ready to open. We have no product. Wholesale was virtually non-existent. We were able to find enough to just stock the store to start. But this that head grower quit the same day that he did the harvest. And I didn't rush to find another head grower. I tried to take my time and let his number two and number three take over for, for that time period. And we finally found someone good. He started with us in January of 2019. It took about a year to really cycle into starting to see his work on the genetics that the old grower had brought in because you have plants in various different cycles. And some of it was able to be made better right off the bat, but you have to wait until nature takes its course. Mm -hmm. And then, so that basically took you through all of 2019. And in 2020, we finally brought in a bunch of new genetics that new guy decided that he wanted these genetics. We brought them in as seeds to make sure we're not bringing any kind of infections from plants from any other states. And so when we bring them in from seeds, you then have to go, pheno hunting and that takes a lot of time. So this new seeds that we brought in at the end of 2019, didn't start hitting the store until like late fall of 2021, mm-hmm. sorry, sorry, that we brought in at the end of 2020, didn't start hitting the stores until the late fall of 2021. And right now we have a new batch of genetics that we augmented that first batch that's going to start hitting the store probably next month or so so we're, we're trying to bring in new genetics every single year now but it just takes time to filter it in so going from one grower to the new grower it was a hassle to wait all that time and to let nature take its course and have the patience to be like fix this right now you know not yeah. to do that um understanding what you're dealing with in terms of a plant and so now our flower is honestly it's really good and there's some patients and consumers that tried the old stuff that isn't very good or, or wasn't very good and having come back to try the new stuff that's that's great mm-hmm. and uh you know in a greenhouse we took fourth place in in the high times uh, cup last year versus mm-hmm. all indoor growers we were number four out of i think 19 entrants so it talks towards what we've been able to accomplish with with our new guy and he's not so new anymore his name is byron but he's not so new anymore but uh our second guy i should say <laughs>
0: yeah it's uh that that's, and i think a lot of you know consumers don't quite understand that once you lift up the hood of the industry and look in at this as an agricultural plant you know you have a you know potentially four month grow cycle plus a cure and then getting it all you know ready dried up packaged but even like you said from planting a seed it's not just a four month grow it's a four month grow to know what you're looking at and then you clip off some clones and then it's a four month pro. you know four months turns to eight months real quick and then like you said when every environment is different for every strain. And then will a strain last one generation to the next and next, or will it just only live one or two and start to die off? You know, there's so many different components that, you know, two years is not that long of a time in a cultivation room to fully get everything dialed in and, and set up. Right. It's not a, exactly. yeah, it's not a, Oh, this crop sucks. We need another one right now. It's not, you can't, you can't turn the switch like that. I wish you could I, I make life easier. <laughs> absolutely absolutely it is it is farming a very intricate plant that has a lot of uh, needs for it and and reacts to just a million and one things a million and one different ways Man, it is. well the, the
1: interesting thing about Massachusetts also is a lot of cultivators don't take the time to properly cure their flower hmm. because you just have to get to market get to market get to market and my grower was begging me give me give me a 60 day cure that's what he begged me for I need a 60-day cure I'm Like you don't have the time you just don't have it and then when COVID started and governor baker became the only governor in the entire country to say recreational cannabis is not an essential service so the entire rec market went shut down from one day to the next i, t- I call up byron and i said byron from now until whenever he turns this around that's your timeline to get your cure cycle that you want because once you once you work it into your cycles it's not hard to get to 60 days because it's mm. just Part of your cycle, it was a sixty-one day shutdown. (laughs) Literally, a sixty-one day shutdown. So, Byron got his sixty-day care, and since then, we've been on the same cycle of sixty-day care.
0: Man, well, that was a. It sounds like it was a a blessing, you know, inside of a curse, right there.
1: Man, it was. It was. It was very nerve-wracking. I'm not going to lie to you. Overnight, ninety-five percent of your sales, ninety to ninety-five percent of your sales disappear, and your fixed costs are basically the same. We only laid off three people from our entire organization. We, you know, we try to keep it as nimble as possible. We care about our employees. So even our store staff, I could tell you, me, my CFO, and my uh, head of HR were on with lawyers understanding all the different potential programs that our employees can take advantage of because we can't, as a cannabis company, take advantage of PPP or EDIL and none of that stuff. Um, but with the stores, when you don't have, when you lose 90 to 95% of your business, you don't have the hours to give to your employees anymore. Mm-hmm. And what we were mm-hmm. able to do is Figure out a way of cutting everyone down to half their hours, but we gave them all the tools to get the other half paid for by state and federal programs.
0: Mm-hmm. So we made it.
1: We, we gave them the ABCs of how to do it instead of other companies that like, were like, figure it out. I'm sure you can figure something out. Figure it out. We told them exactly yeah. how to do it, and I think that that was really, really good for us as well. But at the same time, again, you just have your fixed costs. I only was able to lower them so much. Yeah, and it yeah. was it was very scary watching the account balance go down every single every single day you know it's it's
0: not fun yeah yeah i can i can uh, different different business model for myself but i can definitely attest to very similar feelings over over a portion of 2020 um you know b- back to back to the cultivation right like flower is king a lot of people um Understand the flour is one of the leading s- skews you know, categories that's sold in the market, but it's also the basis of you don't get edibles without flour, you don't get concentrates without flour. So, what was the emphasis that you guys really put on to getting the flour dialed in first and then trickling those components into these other product categories?
1: I mean, it's literally just that focus on flour. We did nothing else for a while. Um, we wanted to just focus on the flour and do whatever we could to make that good because then all of a sudden you're going investing a million dollars in a lab and then a million dollars in a kitchen and then all the HR that comes behind that. And the management side of things would then be split between focusing on these three different segments and within these different segments, multiple other segments. Mm-hmm. And so all of our energy and resources went to getting the flower rights, which is what we are where we got to, to now. And now we're starting to produce other, off, uh, uh, other products as well. Uh, we haven't brought in the full extraction thing, but it's what we're looking at right now. As the next big machinery purchases let's bring in a lab let's, and not just jump right from there into edibles it's let's get the lab done right first let's figure, let's make sure that we're doing concentrates properly let's make sure we're doing vapes properly once we get all of that, distillate isolate make sure we're doing all those different product types properly once we get that dialed then, then we move to the next step instead of trying to do it all at the same time
0: absolutely and then what are what are some of those you know back to the testing too what I've heard in the Massachusetts market is something around the moisture content in flour. Could you give me a little bit more context on kind of the testing requirements and moisture for flour? There
1: is no testing requirements for moisture in general. It's just if you leave a little too much moisture in, you have the potential that it molds up. So people go a little drier just to make sure you don't have any mold. Um, I think we get down to, depending on the strain, 8 to 11% moisture content in, in our different strains at the end of the, of the grow cycle and the cure cycle, I should say. So everyone does it their own way. Um, you know, I, I'm i good enough to talk about this and sound smart and intelligent about this to people that know less than me. But, you know, Byron is, is my guy that handles with this this stuff. And I've been able to learn a lot, but I can't handle it the way he does. Yeah. Um, again, just depending on the strain, 80, 11% is usually where we try and target it. Um, and thankfully we don't really have any mold or PM issues, which is nice. You know, I think that be, talking about the testing and, and the, the restrictions of what you could put on the plants, I think a lot more of the indoor guys had have had issues with failure on flower than we have for a very simple reason. When you're indoors, like you said before, something gets in, you're kind of screwed. And in the West Coast, if mold spores or PM spores get in and start settling on the plants and start circulating throughout your facility, you do have agents that you could put on To the plants to fight back in massachusetts you don't have those agents so if you get something indoors you're kind of screwed in our greenhouses we pump a lot of air through those greenhouses and so as an example in the summer months i think every cubic inch of air in our greenhouses is evacuated once a minute Mm. so all these spores don't have time to settle in on our plants we have other issues which we find ways of mitigating but at the very least, these issues we don't get it because the air is just cycling is flowing through those plants so hard that the spores don't have time to settle in on them.
0: Mm, mm. No, that's a great that's a great point. I think.
1: uh My hypothesis.
0: Of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but I think a lot of people also don't get that. It's very you know when when the issue comes into you know a single plant a clone when it, once it infiltrates a facility, it's. It's all about mitigating and it's not a matter of, you know, if it's a matter of when with it, you know, and you don't know what, but um, those issues come in. And I think that's a great point of of greenhouse and outdoor has that airflow that allows things to maybe move, maybe, you know, might in some cases might work against against you in a negative way that airflow. But more often than not, I'm sure that's probably a proper hypothesis that it could uh, just help help mitigate some of those issues a little bit better. you know, what, what has gone into building a brand in Massachusetts of switching from medical to recreational has opened up, like we were saying earlier, it's opened up normalization where more people are talking about it. There's more distribution points, um, you know, laws and legislation have now, I think in, in a lot of cases allowed for more advertising. I know Massachusetts, like many markets is still pretty restricted in terms of advertising, but what are some of the components that have gone into to building a brand around apotheca? So I think that the first one is your experience within our stores.
1: Um, It's not always perfect, but we put a lot of emphasis on individualized service. There's some uh, guests that are going to come in, and I want an eighth of flow, a a chocolate bar, and a gummy. And they already know what they want. It's a two-second transaction. But there's some people that don't know what they're doing, want to talk about it, want to understand the different products, different ways of ingesting. Uh, And then within the flower, for example, what are the differences between the different strains? So I think that us having our emphasis on that in-store service is a big part of it. Um, from a market perspective, yeah, it's also restrictive. Um, you know there were some people that had billboards before us, but it was very coy billboards about like not really, you know putting it on the nose. Mm-hmm. And for us, there's a billboard above our Lynn store, but about twelve inches off our property line. so it's not counted as our premises under reg- regulations and i bought that billboard for like three years and i went right on the nose the first draft the first version of the billboard was just in big marijuana retail with two down arrows and then all the fine print underneath it Mm -hmm. and i actually Mm -hmm. sent it to the ccc to approve it because i think it was the first one that was just directly on the nose Mm -hmm. um my lawyers thought i was crazy and i sent it to the ccc and to the city the city had no issue with it and my lawyers didn't think the CC would even respond to it and in the end they actually gave me the thumbs up and since then you see a proliferate uh, proliferation of billboards that are much more that are very explicit throughout the commonwealth because that's really the best way of marketing it can't really do social media ads even though i wish i could because you could be hyper targeted in that fashion um can't really go with radio because you have to be able to prove that 85 percent of your audience is over the age of 21 Mm-hmm. TV that one how takes you Pandora Spotify none of those will take you uh, so you really are very limited so we do what we can which is we try and show up at events we try and provide an amazing customer experience within our stores we try and provide a, good, a great product at the end of the day
0: and then uh, you know another question I had is um, looking at you guys have the license to distribute can and can being a major brand on the West Coast, you know, their marketing rollout, they had mentions mentions from Ellen when it was coming, kind of, you know, they had one of just kind of the most the the biggest and best marketing rollouts for cannabis brands that I've ever seen, although it was primarily targeted on the West Coast. Have you seen that brand kind of penetrate into the Massachusetts market? where consumers aware of that product before it launched, or has that kind of been an educational standpoint, being that 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 a lot of their messaging didn't really exist in that market when it first rolled out? So there
1: was, there was some brand awareness it, it wasn't the biggest, it wasn't like a West coast brand awareness, but there was definitely brand awareness to it. Um, and then we worked really closely with can to make sure that we got the sales materials done properly. Um, we, a lot of pop-ups, so really introducing consumers to the brand, um, non-infused samples, things like that. And all these different things put together is what is driving a w- more awareness of can and it's going really well. I mean, can controls the West coast, levia controls massachusetts and we sell Levia as well um Mm -hmm. it's a great product in our in our own stores Levia still outsells can um it's local it got to market first and it went really really wide within massachusetts and so i think that can is doing really really well um the sell through has been really, really really has been great we're onboarding new accounts every week um and we're getting reorders every week from all these accounts so it's definitely picking up steam um, I think the flavor the flavor profile is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think the, the brand design is really, really catchy. Um, and I'm really happy to be working with them.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, tr- I went to the Levia facility when I was out in Massachusetts and checked that out. Um, that was g- awesome. I heard a lot about their success. And so I was curious, so thank you for sharing that. I was curious how, how, how can was infiltrating that market It's tough when, you know, when you come in and there's already a product category leader, but there's obviously plenty of plenty of room in that seltzer that seltzer market for for other brands. And I think that the the
1: one to one beverages, which is cans, bread and butter, I think that, that is a big differentiator with Levia. Uh, Levia, mm. you know, you get five milligrams. Can has her high boy five milligrams, but we sell six packs all the time of the of two and a half, two and a half, which are great it's a great product.
0: Absolutely. I mean and that's, you know, back to an earlier you know, the earlier conversation about the uh the edible THC requirements in general, you know, for consumers like myself, you know, that's not the, you know, I I'm, i don't prefer that, but I do know so many in the, in the broader demographic of the cannabis consumer that um, very much enjoy that. And I, and I love that product category because it kind of, I know some people get annoyed of the alcohol to cannabis comparisons, but I think when a 21 and older person's partaking in a 21 and older good for the sake of a recreational use i think having something that's a similarity right to uh, another behavior or a product that they they consume i think it just helps make it easier and that lower dose makes it just assimilate to cannabis and honestly it helped i think it helps normalize it and breaks the stigma down a lot faster
1: No, ab- absolutely I'm, I'm sure you drink beer sometimes at least. oh yes you'll drink a six pack now. what's the and difference between a six pack of, of, of beer and a six pack of a cannabis infused beverage
0: yeah, I mean, I, you know, but even still, I even still, like, I, I get these infused beverages a little bit higher for me. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. If, you,
1: if you drink six, six, five milligram things, that's thirty milligrams. You should get a buzz off that.
0: A little, I mean, a little bit, you know. <laughs> Maybe if we're talking ten milligrams, but no, I, I, I do think that, and I, I definitely see it. You know, like if I'm in a back, you know, if I'm at a barbecue this summer and there's a cooler and there's beers in there and there's infused seltzers. I might I might dabble back and forth or I might just stick to one, you know, and and I think I I love that it just has that again. It just breaks the normalization of, I mean, as much as I love rolling up blunts and consuming cannabis, I do get that's not proper for all functions. Whereas, you know, (laughs) sipping just an infused seltzer is pretty, you know, you could do that at a a barbecue or a birthday party or a family birthday party.
1: You know, it's funny because like last year, my wife's family had a big family dinner. And I turned to my wife more as a joke. I'm like, should I bring some edibles? She says, sure. So let's see if anyone eats them. My wife, her mom, her mom's boyfriend, her aunt, her two aunts and their husbands, her grandmother, everyone ate the edibles. Mm. Everyone. And it was a really fun night, and so I, I you know, it, it shifted the focus there, and it was, uh, it was the right kind of product for the right kind of environment, and everyone right. tried it, even though they're not really users.
0: Right, right. we are breaking. We're, we're breaking the stigma, man. What, what else, what else do you guys have on the docket for, for 2022? Uh,
1: um, 2022 is an exciting year. So our Boston store just opened medical, the grand openings officially this Wednesday on the 9th. Um, we should be able to add adult youth sales to that by June, maybe July. Um, uh, so we're really looking forward to that. We're gonna be launching some new products and some new brands. Um, to really start segmenting the market differently. Right now, everything we sell is under the Apothka brand. And so we need something a little lower end, a little higher end, as long as the products that we're packaging into those brands actually are higher end and lower end. I don't Mm -hmm. just try and put different labels on things um, unless it warrants it. And so you know, we're really going to be expanding a lot in Massachusetts. And then we're looking at other states. We have applications pending in one other state right now on the East Coast that we're excited about. We'll be applying uh, in at least one other state on the East coast as well this year. Um, and so, you know, maybe, maybe we'll win two licenses in two more States this year and then it comes down to, okay, now we have to operate in a lot of States and uh, make a big investment. And so we'll, you know, it's all exciting for me.
0: Awesome. Well, plenty of growth. I look forward to watching from afar. And I, I look I got to come check out one of these dispensaries on my next trip to, to massachusetts and our cultivation yeah 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 i got to swing i got to swing by and check out the greenhouse man we would we, love to visit absolutely um, awesome well joe i really appreciate you hopping on here for people out there that are interested in finding more you guys can go to their website apotheca.com um i don't know if i have the link in the description but the company name's on there aapothca.com spelled it right i told you i was illiterate i gave you the name the before i started Uh, But awesome, Joe. Thank you for coming on. This is the RMR Podcast, Episode 30. We will see you guys next time. Thanks, Mitch.